Thank you, sir. Well, good morning again. We are going to look at, or continue to look at, Jonah this morning. So I'll have you open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll read to the end of that chapter. Jonah chapter 1, verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us, what is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea was wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. Let us not perish for this man's life. And laid not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah, and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you as we read through it this morning, as we learn from it, that our hearts would be prepared to accept it. Lord, and even as our minds digest the truth, Lord, I pray first and foremost that our hearts would be willing to receive it. Because unless it, it sinks into our hearts, Lord, we won't live it. So I pray that, that once again our hearts would be prepared, that your spirit be, would be working on every mind and every heart to help us to understand and help us to accept Lord, I pray that you use me now as I share this word this morning with my brothers and sisters here. I pray that it would be a benefit to them and also a benefit to me that we might magnify your name in this world where we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the beginning of this particular chapter and we saw God's call to Jonah. And God says in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, he says, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. And we looked at that God holds people accountable for their sin. And the Ninevites were, were the, the inhabitants of a city, a, a pretty big city in those days. 
um, and the people were the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had a really bad reputation. A really bad reputation. Think of the, the people with the worst reputation you can on this earth. And they, had, they were pretty close. They were pretty high up there. They did some terrible things to other people. When they got their hands on them and when they conquered certain people, they would, they would do things that, you'll, that would pretty much make the hairs in your neck stand up. God had called Jonah to go and minister to them, to warn them that his judgment was coming upon them. But instead, Jonah decides to run the other way. And we looked at the reason for that last week. And the reason wasn't necessarily that Jonah was scared of them. Jonah hated them. He didn't like them. And in fact, we saw at the end of the book of Jonah that he says, You see, God? You see? Wasn't this what I told you would happen? That they'd actually repent and that you'd change your mind about destroying them? Jonah didn't want them saved. Jonah wanted God to destroy them completely. And we looked at the fact that God had sent us on the same mission to a world that you may not necessarily like. You know, there are certain things that people do in the world today that we actually despise. That the things that they do, the depths of sin they get into, we look at those things and we say how utterly abhorrent those things are. How disgusting those things are. So then it puts us off from actually preaching to those people. But you know something? They need to hear God's word. Those people who fall into those, that depths of sin need to hear God's word. And God has called us to share the word to everyone. God hasn't set boundaries for us. God has said, I want you to share the word, to live that word, regardless of where you live. Whether it's in Australia, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Europe, wherever you live. There are problems everywhere. If you live in an affluent country, they don't care about God. They're too concerned about their money and their wealth. If you live in the poorer countries, they may be worshipping other gods and looking to them. Or there may be certain religions in place that do absolutely terrible things. But you know something? God calls us not to be fearful. God calls us to be bold for him, to live for him, regardless of where he's planted us in this world. An interesting point that we noted also last week was that when we looked at, at God's calling on Jonah to arise and go and cry out against the city of Nineveh, instead of doing that, Jonah did arise. The Bible said he arose and went down. So instead of arising and crying out, he arose, he got up from where he was and he, and he, and he went down to Joppa. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Again, verse 5 again reminds us that Jonah was down on the sides of the ship. Look at verse 5. And the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship and into the sea to lighten it, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. Now we find... In verse 6, the shipmaster comes to Jonah and he says, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Now, we wouldn't normally phrase that in that way today. What meanest thou, O sleeper? That would pretty much mean, What do you think you're doing sleeping? 
when we're all about to lose our lives up there? How can you be sleeping in a time like this? It's pretty much the flavour of the, of the thing. Jonah had gone down to the sides of the ship and the captain of the ship finds Jonah sleeping while they're all busy praying, frantic, trying to row themselves out of the situation, you know, calling upon all their gods to try to save them. Jonah was, was busy sleeping at the bottom of the ship. <clears throat> Arise, he says, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. You know the amazing thing is? That the ship's captain asked Jonah to do pretty much the same thing that God had asked him to do originally. Arise, get up, call out. He was reminding Jonah the very same thing. Now, this was an unsaved man who was telling him, get up and pray. He reminded Jonah that his job was to be an intercessor. Jonah was meant to intercede. The same way he was meant to intercede for Nineveh. He was meant to be in the middle over there to warn them to do God's work that they might be saved. And here he was called by the captain of the ship to do the same thing. Call on your God, intercede for us that we might be saved. That would be a slap in the face, wouldn't it? Coming from a non, an unbeliever. Arise and pray. And he's a prophet of the living God. A prophet who'd been called to do that very thing. Instead of following the advice of the ship's captain, though, we don't see Jonah praying and calling on God. Jonah instead brought trouble to the lives of other people around him because he wasn't doing what God had called him to do. Lesson one. When we decide to run away from God's plan for us, we start on a downward spiral. We start going down. Jonah started from where he lived, went down to Joppa, went down into a ship. And you know something? When it came down to the crunch and they said to him, what are we going to do with you? He goes, throw me into the depths of the ocean. He was still on a downward spiral. And that's what happens to Christians who run away from God's calling. You know, God calls each and every one to do certain things. He puts us in situations and he says, I want you to go and minister here. I want you to do this and that. I, I want you to use the gifts that I've given you in order to help these people. And you know what we do a lot of times? We close our ears. We'd rather not listen. But what happens with that is that we start to go down a spiral. Down. Often our old sinful nature leads us astray here. Our, can I ask you a question? Does anyone get torn between their sinful nature telling them what to do and what God wants them to do? Yeah. Oftentimes the, the sinful nature is a bit louder, isn't it? It's a bit more compelling. It's a bit easier to listen to the sinful nature because it gratifies our flesh. God may be telling us to do something that's difficult. So you'd rather forget it, put it out of your mind, neglect it. Our old sinful nature often leads us astray. And God works with us as we're going on that downward spiral. He calls us, he continually reminds us. But eventually God gets fed up with our rebellion. And sometimes he sends disciplinary actions our way. 
Sometimes he, he teaches us a lesson through our circumstances. We may not encounter a great fish. You may not be caught up in a storm in the middle of the ocean. But you've probably experienced some storms in your life, haven't you? Things that maybe we could have avoided if we had done the right thing. Instead, we find ourselves in situations that we shouldn't be in. And then we wonder how we're going to get out of it. God doesn't enjoy disciplining. Just like a parent doesn't enjoy disciplining their children. They would rather their children always say, yes, mum, yes, dad, because we know what's best for them and we want them to do the right thing and to learn to grow. God is the same with us. God doesn't like disciplining or smacking us. But if he didn't smack us sometimes, we'd be nightmares. It's like sometimes we've, uh, we've drunk too much red cordial in our spiritual life. We like the sweet lollies, but that causes us to go a little bit haywire, to neglect God and to start running around doing silly things. God doesn't enjoy disciplining his children. He will even send people to speak to you on his behalf, to give you messages, to remind you of certain things. There may be a person in the church who might say something to you that reminds you of a certain thing that you should have done without them even knowing that they've said it. There may be a sermon that speaks to your heart and says to you, hey, do a bit of a turnaround and start walking the other way because where you're heading is going to cause you problems and other people problems. God may even use the unsaved to tell you something that makes you ashamed because you should have known that before. Jonah should have taken God's, God, notice of God's message when the pagan told him to call upon God and start praying. He said, Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah doesn't, doesn't get up and pray and say, and say, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry for what I've done. I want to turn the ship around and we're going to go back and I'm going to go and do the job that I... No, he goes to the guys, throw me overboard. I'd rather be dead <laughs> than, go, than go and do that. When we step outside of God's will, he will place people in our path who will remind us of the direction we should be going. God doesn't want his children to continue on a downward slope. And you know what a downward slope means? It means that tomorrow is worse than today. Tomorrow you will be worse than you are today. In a week's time you'll be worse than you were a week before. We often think to ourselves, you know something, I'll, I'll be a bit disobedient here. And then I'll, I'll drop a little bit of a level, but I'll stay where I am. That doesn't work. That doesn't work that we can simply control our relationship with God in that way. It's not like opening up a tap. You know the tap at home? When you turn the water on, you can control the amount that comes in and out. We can't control it. We think that we're controlling it. We think that, you know, if I'm a little bit disobedient over here, God will overlook that part. You know something, I can control this and that, and God will still be happy with me. But you know something? If we think like that, we're actually kidding ourselves. We actually think that we can control God and the relationship we have with him like a tap. We need to be a little bit more awake about the relationship we have with God and understand how far short we often fall of what he expects of us. Because if we really understood what he expected of us and didn't have our ears closed most of the time, you know something? We'd be crying. 
Like those guys on the ship were crying. God doesn't want us to continue on a downward spiral. And sometimes the difficulties we face in life are our own doing. We wouldn't have them. I'm not saying all difficulties are brought on by ourselves. Because, you know, God even teaches his faithful children important lessons through difficult times. But oftentimes we go through things we don't need to. And you know what happens when you start disobeying God. You know in your hearts this is the truth. When you start disobeying God, all of a sudden you find it very difficult to pray to him. Don't you? I know. It happens with me. When I'm being disobedient in something, it's difficult for me to come before his throne and start talking with him. Just like if you've offended someone else, right, and your relationship is difficult at that stage, how easy is it to talk with that person openly and honestly? No, you don't talk openly and honestly. You talk very superficially. Because it's difficult to have a heart-to-heart conversation. So you stop having heart-to-heart conversations with God. Because you start avoiding him. And then, if you continue in the downward slope, you then, as you read the Bible, find it more and more uncomfortable. Difficult to read. Why? Because it's hurting you. It's hitting you where, you, where, you, uh, where you're disobeying. So all of a sudden, you start to neglect that. You start to put that to the side. And then if the, the spiral continues downward... You find it difficult to come to church. Now, why is that? Why do I put that third? I put that third because coming to church can be a big play acting. People can go to church their whole lives and and act. They can put on the face. They can put on the facade of the Christian and, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But deep down in their hearts, they have no relationship with God. So you can play church for a while. But you know what happens after that? The more you go to church and the more you see other people obeying God, you know what you begin to do? You begin to hate them. You begin to see the difference between yourself and them. And you start saying, what a spiritual snob that person is. Look at them saying they do this and they get blessed of God here because you're not getting any blessings. You're not happy where you are. How dare they say... They're getting blessings from God and they've got this wonderful relationship with him. Isn't that true? Don't, when when we're being disobedient, look at other people actually being obedient and actually begin to despise them for the relationship they have. And we begin to hate them. We find it uncomfortable to be around them. Yet all the while, the problem is in here. The problem is not out there. The problem is always in here. If I see other people in my church and I begin to not like them and the way they are, you know what what probably the problem is? The problem is I've got a problem with God. God doesn't want us to go on a downward spiral. He wants us to be better and stronger every day. He doesn't want his children to be going downhill. He wants his children to be stronger and stronger. The grace of God gives us little messages each and every day. There is a still voice that speaks to us. Because you know something? I believe that when you're saved and receive the Holy Spirit, you don't lose him. And he doesn't lose you. You can run like Jonah, but you can't lose God. 
Because God's always with you. Jonah ran from God, was being thoroughly disobedient to God, yet God was really with him the whole time. Jonah just thought he could run away from God's presence. Oftentimes we think we can run away from God's presence. Have a bit of a holiday. God's always with us. God doesn't want us to run from him. God wants us to be closer to him. And sometimes that's difficult. Because the closer you get to God, the more dirty I look. The more stained I look. The more flaws I see in this character. The more I realise how low I've actually, I actually am compared to his expectations of me as a child. But God continues to give us little hints along the way. And we just need to be perceptive of those hints. God teaches us lessons through his word, through the people around us that are saved, through our church, and also through the unsaved, if it has to be. Jonah was getting that message loud and clear here. But Jonah still refused to call on the name of the Lord. So the Lord was about to send him another message, which was even louder than the first. Not only did he get the first message when the captain said, Hey, wake up, call on God, that we might be saved. That's a message loud in itself, isn't it? To, at a, to a prophet of God by an unsaved person. But then look at verse 7. Then they all decided to get together and they said everyone to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots that we, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. What a coincidence, right? That was a big coincidence. That these guys all get together and say, Let's cast lots and see who draws the short straw here. And the short straw goes to Jonah. I know there's a scripture verse that says in Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The Lord controls even those things which we think are chance, are flukes, are coincidences. There are no coincidences in God's realm. Because God is in control. And he was in control here. Did he have the, the choice to, did God have the choice to not use that as a, uh, as a tool? Yeah, he had the choice. The, the, the lot could have fallen on someone else and they might have been totally misled. But God decided to choose that as well. God decided to use that opportunity to point the finger again. So instead of now one man pointing the finger and saying, you should be praying to God, all of a sudden he's got the whole ship pointing the finger at him and saying, what have you done? Who are you? God can control the dice. And from the time that Jonah was awakened, you see, Jonah fell asleep in the side of the ship, the bottom of the ship. He probably thought to himself, oh, I'm out of here. I'm scot-free. There's no way God's going to disturb me down here in the middle of the, of the ocean, in the middle of the sea, in a ship going, going hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But you know, from the time that Jonah, if I was in Jonah's shoes... From the time the captain found him and said, wake up and pray, you start to say to yourself, oh no. He's found me. He's got me already. And he knew in his mind that God had already gotten him. But then when this thing happened and, the, and everyone's pointing the finger saying, you did this. <laughs> it was all over. The game was up for Jonah. The Lord clearly exposed him, not just, to, not just to himself, but exposed him to everyone else. Lesson number two. You can run from the Lord, but you can't hide from him. 
And he will eventually not just find you because he knows where you are all the time, but he will expose you if he has to. He will expose you and he will in the most, let's say, um, shameful way, expose you in front of unbelievers. One of the most embarrassing things that can occur to a Christian is for, let me, let me see if, I, if, if, I, if I'm on the right, same page as you guys, is when an unbeliever points out your sin. Ever been in that situation? Where an unbeliever says, hang on, aren't you a Christian? But you just swore, or you just, you just said an untruth, or you didn't pray over your meal. I've had people saying to me, hang on a sec, you're a Christian, you didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see you pray over your food today. Hang on, that's a shameful thing. You know, when, when an unbeliever points that out, how do you feel? You feel like you just want to... <coughs> have you ever been in a situation where you've said something or done something or should have done something that was pointed out to you by someone who wasn't saved because they know you're a Christian and they're looking for things to point out at you? They notice you did something wrong. And the funny thing is, even though they themselves do exactly the same thing all the time, they're very quick to point out that flaw or that, that mistake that you made. They not only notice it, right? When an unbeliever finds a Christian and then, and then sees them do something wrong, they generally don't just notice it, right? But they normally point it out to you. And they'll say something like, didn't you just... Didn't you just... We have to realise as Christians that people are looking at us at every angle all the time. But we shouldn't be living for that. We shouldn't be living right around the, the unsaved just so that we've got, we've got everything, you know, we're keeping them happy. Our lives should be consistent in front of believers, non-believers and when we're alone. Our lives should be consistent from every possible angle. Whether we're at home with our families and the way we speak with our families should be the same way we speak when we're in church and when we're in other places. But if we spend our time running from God, then oftentimes we're not very perceptive about our walk, are we? When we spend time running from God, like Jonah was, he'd fallen asleep. We're not very perceptive about what we're doing and what we're saying. We often lose track of that in front of people, especially non-believers. Sometimes we avoid the obvious truth and we become bad witnesses to those people around us. But when the Lord uses an unbeliever to reveal your sin, that's the day you better take some serious notice of the Lord and his message. Because if you're sinning openly in front of people who aren't saved, guess whose name is being blasphemed? Because of you and me. Guess who they point the finger at and say, he's a whole lot of mumbo-jumbo. Because look at him. Whose name gets blasphemed? God's does. Because really our name doesn't mean anything. But God's name does. So we need to be very careful when unbelievers point that out to us. To reach a state where you're sitting openly in front of unbelievers means you're already past the stage of listening to Christians. 
You're already past the stage of noticing sermons from the pulpit. You see, I can be preaching up here for an hour or two. But you may very well be sitting there not listening to anything I'm saying. And you may walk out that door exactly the same way you came in. Now that's your prerogative. That's your choice. I can't get into your head, can I? I can't force you to accept what I'm saying. But you know something? If you find yourself week after week coming to church but not taking anything beneficial out of it, I would dare say that it's not the problem of the speaker, the one who's standing behind here, although I'm not perfect as a speaker. It's probably the problem with yourself. And the, and the probability is you've actually shut off your listening, your spiritual ears, because you don't want to change anymore. If you find yourself being pulled up by unbelievers, take serious thought about your walk. And don't waste time before you arise and call on Jesus to restore that relationship. And do the very things that he's asked you to do. If you live like the world, in the world, you're causing the name of Jesus to be blasphemed. And you know something about that? When you allow the name of God to be blasphemed, blasphemed and his name isn't that important to you anymore, God will not that allow to go on indefinitely. He will eventually put a stop to it. Yes, God may even kill you. God may even decide to take you home earlier than when you should have been there. God will discipline his children so that his name is not blasphemed in the world. Now let's see Jonah's response in verse 8. They said unto him, Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? Verse 9, And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and dry land. The same, it's interesting, like they, they, they spotted him out, he got caught out with the, with the lots, so they said to him, Where are you from? Now, whose people are which, you know, what sort of people are you from? Who, who do you belong to? What's your job? These are the same sort of questions you'd ask to find out immediately about, about someone who you'd just met. If you wanted to know about them. what do you do? Where are you from? What's your background? They asked him exactly the same questions. And Jonah gave him a very plain answer. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And they would have been well aware of who the Hebrews were. I mean, it's a bit like here in Indonesia. If someone says I'm from Indonesia or I'm from Fiji or whatever, you know. Because they're in the same vicinity. The Hebrews had been around for quite a while. They knew each other. So he said, I'm a Hebrew. And Jonah gives them another important piece of information after that. He says to them, and I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. Now you may, with that answer, you may start to, to question, how can he possibly say, I fear the Lord, and he's running away from his presence? Doesn't sound like too much fear there, does it? But Jonah wasn't, was telling him a lot more about who God and the God that he served than just saying, I believe in God. You see that they were already praying to all their gods, weren't they? And there were more than one there. And he said, to, when, he, when the shipmaster came to Jonah, he said, you pray to your God. I'm going to pray to my God. That guy there is going to pray to his God. We're all going to pray to our gods. You know something? Maybe one of them is going to listen. 
So when the shipmaster came to Jonah, he, he did exactly as he would have done himself, pray to his own God. And he said to Jonah, you pray to your God. But when Jonah gave the answer, he actually gave them more. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Because Jonah wasn't just saying, I fear God. Notice where it says the Lord. Notice where it says, I fear the Lord. Well, that Lord is in capital letters, isn't it? You know what he was telling them? The name of his God. He wasn't just saying, I fear God. He was saying to them, um, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Jehovah. Jonah was telling them the name of the God that he served. Now, why is that important? Well, because in Canaan, the people worshipped a whole variety of gods. A whole variety of them. Good, bad, ugly, fertility gods, storm gods, um, crop gods, weather gods, sea gods. There were a whole plethora of these, of these, uh, of these gods that they all served. And for sailors, they probably would have worshipped a god of the sea. A god who would give them guidance in the sea. Most of these people coming from different countries would have had national gods. Most of them would have. If you were from Assyria, you had your god, who was an Assyrian god. Other countries would have had their own national gods, gods that looked after their little nation, as well as gods you may have been in common. And you know something was interesting? Most of them were accepting of everyone else's gods. Most of them were quite happy to say, oh, yeah, that's your God. Yeah, you know, my God, my God's this one. Most of them were happy to say, no, you're, they weren't going around saying, hang on, your God's wrong. My God's the only God you should be following. No, they were more than happy to say, you know, you call on your God, I'll call on mine. It's a bit like India at the moment. You know, India, you've got, go to different villages. I'm assuming every state you go to, they've got their different, their local gods. But no one's going around saying to each other, oh, your God's a rubbish God. You know, the elephant God over there, he's, a, he's, he's better. Oh, and the, and the, the, the bull God, is, you know, he's no good. But is it true? Are they going around telling each other off in, in, the, in the Hindu religion about your God is, is, is no good and my God's the only one? No. They actually are accepting of everyone's gods because there are a plethora out there of gods. So when Jonah gave the name of God... Right? And he said, this is the God that I serve. He then gave more information. Um, Jonah declared the name of God as Jehovah. Turn to Exodus chapter 6 verse 1 for me for a moment. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. says, the Lord... See the Lord? Same, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah. All right? Said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Now he was talking about rescuing the Jews. He was talking about rescuing the Hebrew people from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 2. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. There's, there's a couple of different ways you may be able to pronounce that name. But generally, it's a very difficult name to pronounce. We've anglicised it a bit, the Jehovah. Okay? Verse 3. 
And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. Now hang on a sec, what's going on here? I was known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as... God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah, was I not known unto them. What's he saying? So he's saying to Moses, Moses, I'm Jehovah. I'm the one who spoke to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and, the, and I was the one who made the promises to them. They knew me as God Almighty, but I'm telling you my name is Jehovah. I'm telling you what my personal name is. Now, the actual word, Sarah says, by the name of God Almighty. Well, that's the name Al, Al Shaddai. And that name Al is prevalent in a lot of names and titles throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Okay? Now, just to give you a, a, a basic rundown. Al is the root or comes from a root word which means strength and power. That's where you get the Almighty from, you see. Strength and power. By itself, Al was also used in the, in the Old Testament to signify God, gods, or other gods, angels, or even some, sometimes men who are in strong power and authority. Okay? But when it referred to God, the real God, it was normally attached to another title. Right? The Jews had this way of attaching extra bits to it. To signify who it was they were talking about. It wasn't a false, it wasn't an angel, it wasn't a false god, it was the God that they were talking about. So if you go through the Old Testament, this is probably an interesting study in itself. There are so many names that begin with the name Al. Okay? I'll give you a few of them. Al Ashad. Now please don't judge me on the pronunciation here. That meant the one God. And that's used in in Malachi. Al Hana Enam, the faithful God. Al Emet, the God of truth. Al Sadiq, the righteous God. Al Shaddai, the all sufficient God. Al Elyon, the most high God. Al Olam, the everlasting God. There are so many titles that God gives himself through that name Al. And you know something? Look for Al in other places because I know that his people are called Israel. Al. And do you know that there's a, an, an angel, an archangel called Gabriel, Mikel, Michael. A lot of the names you find in the Old Testament actually have the Al in there. So it was the name that God was known as, and it meant strength and power. It basically meant the title God to them. But when God spoke to Moses, he introduced himself with a personal name. This was the name, Yahweh. And it's it, what, the, what the big Bible scholars call the, the tetragrammaton, all right? which is basically just four letters. Okay? And we pronounce that name Jehovah. Okay? Um, they would have pronounced it definitely in a dif differently to that. All right? Um, this is the name that Jonah declared to those people who were on that ship. I worship Jehovah. That's the Jehovah that 
saved the, the Israelites from Egypt. That's the same Jehovah who did all those miracles throughout the Old Testament. That's the same Jehovah who created all things. And he actually goes on to tell them that. And he was saying by declaring that to the men on the ship, he was saying, you know something? I fear Jehovah. All right? Now Jehovah, yes, you, you may understand that Jehovah is already associated with the Hebrews. Okay? They may have already known that. They may have known who all the different national gods were. But then he told them another thing. He says, this is the thing, he's the only God. He's the God of heaven who made all the land and all the sea. He is the one and only God. The one who doesn't even believe in any of the other gods. He doesn't tolerate any of the other gods. The one who made everything in heaven and on earth. Verse 9 says, And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and dry land. Many of the other, many of the soldiers, sorry, sailors, would have probably had their own personal gods. Now that was a direct, basically a direct message to them, that this is the God who I serve and see what he can do. You might be serving a, a, a God of the sea or another God, but you know something? When you look around you, have a look at what my God can do compared to what your God can do. You can be praying till, you're, till you run out of breath to your gods. Because when my God says he wants to do something, your gods don't have a say. Your gods can't do anything. And that means your prayers don't do anything. He is the one who made heaven, the sea, and all the dry land. Lesson three. God will be glorified one way or the other. God will glorify himself one way or the other. Even through disobedient children, he can still be glorified. Even though Jonah decided to disobey the Lord by running away, he declared ultimately the name of God and who God was, and God was glorified through letting the people on that ship know that he was in control of the waves of the ocean, of the land and heaven. God was glorified despite Jonah's disobedience. In the end, in the end, God will be glorified by all men, believe it or not. By all men. Because in the end, either you have bowed the knee to him now, during your lifetime, or you will bow the knee to him after you die. When you are judged, every man will glorify God. And even in hell, men, men will admit and understand that they were wrong and what God has done is right. Do you know that, um, that passage in Scripture that's often taken as a parable about the rich man and Lazarus? Do you hear the rich man saying, God, you're not right to have done this? How dare you have done this? I was a righteous man. I don't hear any complaining from him from that end. No argument from him. He knew where he was and he knew he deserved to be there. In the end, God will be glorified. The lesson for us is to glorify him in our lives today. 
to seek his glory. That's why he's called us his children. That's why he saved us, that he might glorify himself through us, that this world might see the heart that he has, the character that he has when we live out his character and his life and his leading in our lives to those people that are out there. If we're being consistent Christians, if we're walking in the path that God wants us to walk, the people will see exactly what God's like. They don't need to see tempests and waves and all this sort of miraculous stuff because they'll see him living out his life through you and me. That's why Jesus lives in our hearts. That he might live his life, his glory through us. The lesson for us is that we had to glorify him today. Not to get God to back us into a corner like Jonah did to glorify him. Jonah had to get right into a corner. He had to expose his sin. He had to rebuke him in front of everyone else. And then he finally said, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord. The, guy, the one who did all this stuff. Why do we need to be like that? Do we need to be backed into a corner by God to glorify his name? No. We should be glorifying his name every day by the things we say and the things we do. Verse 14 of Jonah says, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, whose God are they calling there? They're calling him by name now. They're all now not praying to their gods, they're praying to him. And they're asking him for mercy. Thou hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Wow! That's amazing, isn't it? So one minute they're all crying to all their different gods, all of a sudden they're all crying to the Lord... By name, they feared him, they made sacrifices to him, they made vows to him. What's a vow? They made promises to him. And you know what's, what's, a, um, what's amazing about that as well? They would have got back, when they got back to shore, who do you think they would have told? Don't you think they would have gone back to their families, their friends and said, guess what happened to us? We were stuck in this storm. There was a guy on the ship who was a prophet of, of Jehovah. And you know, we, we found him out. His own God exposed him. We were about to break up. We are all about to die. And then he said, throw me into the sea. The sea calmed like that. And now we know that there's this God called Jehovah. You know something? The gods that we were serving before, they couldn't do anything to help us. They were useless. Yeah, they cried unto the Lord. They feared the Lord. They made sacrifices to him. That's an amazing turnaround, isn't it? Jonah was able to convert people without wanting to convert them in the first place. The conclusion. There's an argument going around in the with the intellectual elite in universities and all the like that argues, <clears throat> that paints the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses and Joshua and all the prophets, as just another Canaanite God. I've heard this just put to me before. How can, you just, how can you worship a Canaanite God? I mean, there were literally dozens and maybe even hundreds of them. 
And you just decided to worship one of those gods. What's, why aren't you worshipping Baal or, you know, Chemosh or Molech or any of those other gods? There were, there were dozens of them. Why is that Canaanite god that you serve any different? They argue, how can you believe in a god who was around in those days amongst a pantheon of other gods? who were conjured up in the same time in the same area. Ah, but there's a difference. There's a big difference here. Because who worships Baal today? Those gods gods are dead and gone. Those gods were shown, first of all, to be the figment of people's imaginations that didn't do anything to anyone. Who worships the Egyptian gods today? Who even knows the Babylonian gods, the Assyrian gods? Do you know how many hundreds and hundreds of gods have disappeared into the the pages of history with nothing more said about them? But yet this one Canaanite god called Jehovah has now worshippers all over the world and his name continues on. Tell me another ancient god who has done the same. We think of the, the Nordic gods. You know, all those, um, you know, the Vikings? The Vikings had a whole plethora of gods as well. The Greeks had a whole plethora of gods. Plenty of, plenty of movies you can watch about the Greek gods these days. But does anyone worship Zeus? Does anyone worship Odin? Does anyone follow those gods? Does anyone take them at all seriously? They're all dead and gone. Yet this one God who identifies himself with a a small group of people who he called to Canaan, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but has through history endured all the onslaughts, has endured all the, and everything else. This same God also, as I understand it, was able to perform such miraculous deeds. He parted a Red Sea. He saved a group of people using plagues that the other gods that the Egyptians had could not do anything about. He has shown himself from the beginning of time till now to be the only God. The one who doesn't tolerate all the other gods. The one who puts to shame all the other gods. He has done it consistently. And he has proven himself to be the only true God. He has proven his character. And we've seen his character being played out through history. In his word, we understand what he did from the beginning of time, even until now. We understand him. We have a record of him. How many other records of the gods do you follow these days? Do people follow about their exploits? How many myths and legends are out there? There are thousands of myths and legends of gods. Thousands of them. Thousands. But who takes any of those mythical stories seriously? But yet there's, there are pages in a book that we read that don't have the smell of myth to them. They have the flavour of fact from the beginning until now. They, when you read them with, with a with an unblemished heart, with a a heart that's not biased, 
When you read those stories, you realise these are different to all the stories that are out there. All those different gods did all these silly things, fighting amongst each other and stuff like that. Yet this one consistently says, this God created everything and look what he's done throughout all of history. It's consistent, even though the people who wrote that particular book and wrote those writings numbered more than 40 different men through all ages, from different realms of, of, uh, of society, and they all said the same thing about this one God. And then finally, which God has ever shown himself to have loved creation as much as this God? To have sent his only son into this world to save men and women from their sin. Which God did that and showed it historically that it was true? You know, the resurrection and the, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically proven events in history. There's more stuff written about those things than there is about Napoleon and Alexander the Great and all those things that people take for granted, yet people want to question the very historical fact of Jesus Christ. There is more about, written about Jesus and the fact of where he lived and what he did and, and everything else that, comes, that, that happened around him than any other historical figure from history. The God that we served or that we serve, sorry, is a God of history. It's a God, he's a God who's revealed himself through history. And for that very reason, we can be confident in who we serve today. We know his name. We know the name of the son that he sent to save us from our sins. The God who we serve has fulfilled every promise he made from the beginning by sending his only son to die for my sin, to die for your sin. Do you fear this God today? Like Jonah. Jonah says, I fear this God. He's the one I serve. Now let me ask you a simple question. Do you fear him today? Because, you know something? Fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Not the end of. And it's not a byproduct. The fear of God is the, the first point that someone needs to understand that he is holy and an all-powerful God who demands Righteousness, because he himself is righteousness. He is the one who revealed his personal name to us. Do you fear him today? Can you stand in front of other people and say, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour? Those simple words may change the lives of people around you greater than what you think. God bless you. Thank you.